call me sentimental, but to me, the most joyful moment in sports is the soccer goal. And when that goal happens at the World Cup, well, it's pretty good. I'm Brian Phillips. With the 2022 Men's World Cup approaching, I'm making a podcast called 22 Goals on the Ringer Podcast Network. It's about 22 of the most fire emoji goals in the history of the tournament. We're going to have so much fun. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the 1981 Finals MVP. And of course, you hear him on the Celtics broadcast each and every night. It is Cedric Maxwell. Max, thanks so much for taking some time, man. I know you guys got a busy road trip. We really appreciate it. Uh, just just flew in here to New Orleans after a very good win last night uh, versus the Atlanta Hawks. So excited so far about these first couple of games on the road trip. Yeah, and one of the things that sticks out to me, Max, is it felt like entering the season, there was so much bad news with the Celtics, right? You had the Ime Adoka situation. We found out right before the season as well that Robert Williams was going to be out longer than we expected, and they have the best net differential in the NBA. They have the best record in the NBA. Did you expect this type of domination right out of the gate? No, considering what happened, uh, you know, with the Ime situation, because he has such a a powerful relationship with guys like Marcus Mark and Jason Tatum and Brown and Al Horford that I thought it might take a little bit more time for Joe Missoula really to get his, his put his imprint on this team. But it uh, seems like they've, they've stabilized. They understand what they're going to do. And uh, it's been smooth sailing so far. Uh, knock on wood. Yeah, and if you look at it, what sticks out to me, of course, is the offense. If we thought the Celtics were going to lead in some category at the beginning of the season, it would be their defense because that's what they did last year. But I mean, they're almost four points better per 100 possessions than anybody else. And the gap between them and the second team is the same as the second and the eighth team. So what do you has jumped out in terms of why they've been so efficient offensively to begin the season? A couple of things. Uh, Obviously, Jason Tatum's play, but also Marcus Smart's play. Uh, Marcus Smart controlling the initial point of attack. Uh, if you're either a Marcus Smart fan or you aren't, and I think people are getting off the uh, the bandwagon of being not because he's been so good. Everybody screamed up by him not taking as many shots. Well, he hasn't taken as many shots. 
his uh, his assist totals have gone up, and he's still the same defender. But he's controlling the outcome of the game with his ability to find players around him, Tatum, Brown, doing all these things on the floor. Yeah, and then you look at it too with Tatum. You mentioned how impactful he's been, and finishing at the rim has been much better than it was a season ago. He's getting to the free throw line as well. So, I mean, it feels like he's made a jump from being a really, really good player to right now, Max, it feels like if you were doing the early MVP ballot, he'd have to be in the top three, correct? One of the early players right now in MVP. Uh, what I'm, what I like about him this year, to me, what has changed is, is the fact that uh, he's a better defender. And uh, John Morant uh, against uh, Memphis uh, had, had it going. And Jason Tatum took him on. Heads up. And you didn't see Jason Tatum getting these positions. He's doing so much more right now for this team. Uh, his assist totals have gone up. Uh, going to the free throw line always is uh, critical to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, just being a distributor of the basketball and understanding that he's a focal point. But in order to get productivity for himself, he has to get other people involved early. Uh, and that's a lot like what Michael Jordan did uh, early in his career. Um, when he really started to get good, you know, Scotty got going or, or Horace or all these other people got going early in the game. And because of that, they couldn't focus on Michael Jordan the same way right now. If Brown is going early, if Horford's going early, Smart is going early, I think it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where he sees that. And he understands that he's going to be a high-volume shooter. So every shot he takes doesn't have to be the one. The ball is always going to come back to him some way in, in some fashion. Yeah, and I was wondering from your perspective, of course, you were around for the Pierce era as well. How do you think Tatum compares to Pierce? Uh, completely different players. Uh, obviously, Tatum is, is longer. Paul Pierce is about 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, Tatum is legitimate, six, eight and a half, uh, long arms, quickness, um, probably a little bit quicker than Paul Pierce and maybe a little bit more explosive than Paul Pierce was. I think Paul Pierce was a, a, a better mid-range shooter and the guy taking the ball towards the hole because Paul stayed at the line. But Tatum is starting to learn the same things, same kind of tricks about getting those fouls early and getting to the line and shooting free throws. Yeah, and it's been tremendous to watch this season. And one of the things I mentioned earlier, just briefly, the defense, but it felt like the second half of the Thunder game, they turned on the defense after playing poorly in the first half. And then against Atlanta, who came in as a good offensive team, they just completely dominated them. Obviously, part of the calculus here is they don't have Robert Williams, so that's obviously going to hurt you defensively. But do you have any concern on that end? Do you think they'll be fine there? I think they'll be fine. I think when Robert comes back, it's going to be only another layer on the cake. And think about it. He's not the offensive guy. He can he can get the lobs, and I think it gives you another layer for the lobs. But he's more efficient at blocking shots, rebounding the basketball, and that's only going to help them. I think if you looked at last night's game against the Atlanta Hawks, uh, it was three, four different times the Hawks got three, four offensive rebounds. With Rob Williams out there, that doesn't happen because he is a, a uh, dramatic rebounder. And on top of that, if you're coming towards the hole, you look for that guy to, to block shots. So it's going to give the Celtics another 
uh, a coat, uh, another layer on their defensive end. Yeah, I can't wait to see him back there because, I mean, when he was healthy against the Warriors in the finals, it was totally different than earlier on in the postseason. Clearly, they need that guy once they get and get to the playoffs, and I hope they can get him healthy to the finish line. But the other thing in terms of this team is Brogdon, I know he's missed the last couple of games. He's been dealing with that hamstring issue. It looks like he's listed as probable to play in the game against New Orleans. But what's been the biggest difference, or what have you seen that he brings to the team that maybe they didn't have a season ago? Well, I think he's that old man smart. Uh, you know, we look at him, he comes down, he looks a little slow, but he gets to where he wants to go. He has enough quickness to beat you on the dribble. But what I love about it is the fact that when he's on the floor and Marcus Smart is on the floor, you got two dramatic guys who control the initial point of attack defensively. Uh, Brogdon is so good defensively, quick hands, runs to the passing lanes. At the same time, tremendous free throw shooter and a finisher. Uh, probably a better consistent three-point shooter than maybe Marcus would be. He's a standstill shooter, but he gives you a whole nother dimension when it comes to the uh, point guard position for the Celtics. Yeah, I can't believe that all they had to give up. I guess it was the injuries was basically a first-round pick in Aaron Neesmith, but Brad's done this multiple times now, right? I mean, he got Derek White for a first-round pick that nobody's going to care about. He dumped Kemba's contract, and they gave up a pick, but they brought back Al, and they don't make the finals without Al last year. So it feels like, to me, Brad is a better GM than he was a coach, and he was a really good coach. Brad has uh, been really good. And I talked to Brad about this, and I said, and I've said it before, I said, who is better at buying the groceries than the guy who's in the kitchen cooking? And Brad knew this team because he coached this team. So he would know all the nuances, all the weaknesses and the strengths of this team. And because of that, I think he put him, put himself in the GM position. He was able to go out and get the players that he felt were going to make this team better defensively and offensively where they were weak. If you are that head coach and you see these guys every day, you know the deficiencies that you have. And because of that, again, I think that's why he's made so many good moves on the uh, trading block. Yeah, it's a great point. It's worked out so far. It's been unbelievable. So, I got to ask you about this because so Sam Hauser is now number one in the NBA in plus minus, which it certainly helps that you get to play with the Tatum guy most of the time and the Jalen Brown guy most of the time. Right. But his shooting has obviously been somewhat of a game changer for this team at times. So I'm wondering why they didn't give him any burn in the postseason at all last year when it felt like at times in the Miami series and the Milwaukee Bucks series that. The spacing was really messed up. So mm-hmm. what do you th- what do you think the reason for that was? Did they just not feel like he could do it defensively? Was that the issue? They thought he was going to have a, a hard time defensively. And this year, he's he's proven. I mean, when they put him in there, he's proven he can kind of at least hang with guys and, you know, and make that transition. Uh, last night was really funny. After the uh, Atlanta Hawk game, uh, Dominique Wilkins walks over to me and going, who the hell is number 30? <laughs> who, who is that guy? <laughs> so he was really impressed by his ability to knock down shots. So, um, you know, sometimes you are that commodity that people don't know. And I'm sure he's going to be now more so on the radar for the opposing team, especially when you think about the scouting report. All right. So how about Joe Missoula? Because it felt like I didn't think that was the obvious decision. I know you were around the team, but it felt like, OK, Damon Stoudemire was on the bench last year and 
Missoula was sort of behind the bench. One of the things, of course, is he was a carryover from the Brad staff. And I remember the story like around the finals, people were talking about Missoula and Tatum was asked about him. And I guess Tatum had gone to Ime to say, this is a guy you want to keep on your staff. So it didn't feel like an obvious decision to begin with. But what have you made of Missoula so far? Well, he's been great. Uh, we The thing we haven't seen, uh, and you're always waiting for that, is controversy. And you haven't really seen it with this team, how he's going to handle that. Uh, I remember the Chicago game, him getting thrown out of that game, uh, you know, kind of going back and forth with, with the officials. But for the most part, a very calming influence. Emei was a little bit more hands-on. Joe looks to be a little bit more hands-off. And sometimes it works out. Uh, during the 80s, uh, we had Bill Fitch uh, was our head coach for the Boston Celtics. And guys just got tired. He was so hands-on that it got guys to be tired. We were we started to be grown men. I think that's the same thing you look at Tatum and Brown now. They don't need anybody to hold their hand. They kind of know what they need to do. And maybe with uh, Joe Mazzulian, it's been a little bit more like, dude, you do the job. Get it done. I'm trusting in you. And uh, I, I remember me made many times challenging guys. I, my my favorite story, and I got a chance to talk to Ime about this. I said, does it drive you crazy when Marcus Smart throws one of those crazy passes? And Ime said, yeah, it does. But he said, me and myself and Marcus, we had we had an agreement. I told him, I said, Marcus, you got one time. <laughs> and then Marcus would throw a crazy pass. And then look over, he looked over at the coach and went, that was my one. And then it goes back to being, you know, very solid. So, it's really strange when you think about the differences between the coaches, but at the end of the day, what's going to be the, the best factor? So far, this team is playing great. Again, you're waiting to see what happens because every team is going to hit the speed bump in the NBA in 82 games. But so far, they're playing great under this new coach. Yeah, he seems like he's more of the Brad demeanor than he is the Ime demeanor. The only thing he doesn't take it easy on is that gum, man. I mean, holy crap, does he chew his gum? That is that is ridiculous. I mean, he's going to like take out a filling or something one of these days. I mean, that's intense. Have you somebody, asked him about that? No, somebody did say, how much gum do you chew per game? <laughs> I, I really didn't get into that. But what you see with him, another factor is he is, a lot of coaches call timeout he's more reluctant to call timeout. And I've always believed that as a player, I hate it when the coach called timeout sometimes when the team was rallying rallying on the other side because when it did, it gave the crowd a chance to get amped up that much more for that minute, two minutes, or whatever the timeout is. Whereas sometimes when you get back and you play, you can put that crowd and you can quell that by getting out playing well and taking that energy away from the crowd that they get during the timeout when you when they're uh, on the road. Yeah, the one time I would have liked him to pull the trigger earlier was that Bulls game where I felt like, okay, it's just getting out of control. It's it's overdue for the t- the timeout. When, in that when, game. when Grant when Grant Williams runs into the official, accident or no accident, yeah, I think you might be a little little out of control <laughs> by then. As Grant might be one of the most calming guys out there. And that's another factor which we don't talk about as much. Grant Williams. Grant Williams is having a great year. Shooting the ball from three, but more so defending every single guy out there. It could be, you know, it could be the biggest guy. It could be uh, Jokic. It could be, 
you know, a smaller guard. It could be Giannis. He takes that challenge, and, and somebody on this team has to do it. He's done a great job of being that guy. Smart as a whip, plays the mental game better than anybody I've seen in the last 20 years that I've been around the Celtics of understanding, you know, plays, understand players, understand where to be, how to be, how to get there. He does a great job of that. Yeah, and Grant, too. I mean, since they put him in the starting lineup, the defense has been significantly better with him out there in that starting unit. I just I can't believe how good of a shooter he is now. I mean, he's legitimately one of the best three point shooters in the league. And I I didn't see that coming when he was coming out of Tennessee. Did you? No, I don't think anybody saw that. And you think the first it was like the first 25 threes he took in the NBA. I think he missed all of them. And then he got on the roll and now he got he's confident about what he's doing. Uh, you know, I talked to him and Tatum the other day. It was actually in Boston and he was guarding Tatum in a little practice simulation, you know, before the game. And I told Tatum, I said, how do you feel like, you know, when you have your Padawan, you know, working under you like this, Grant? And, he, and Grant looked at me and said, Padawan? Hell, I, I, I'm his superior because I kick his ass all the time. So <laughs> I think they respect who Grant is. They love who Grant is. And then you add into to the mix another guy who's a uh, a solid killer over there is Jalen Brown, who is having, again, another quiet all-star year that he might be overlooked because of the brilliance of, uh, of Tatum. Yeah, and when Jalen gets out on transition, it's just ridiculous. There was one play last night. It wasn't even in transition, but he went up in the air. He took, like, the verticality from Clint Capella or one of the bigs. It could have been on Kongwu. And he just was able to stay in the air and still get the ball off when he was going down and he got to the free throw line. I'm like, this is like a next level for even for like an NBA player. He's in like the top 1% of athletes in the league. He takes, he takes, absorbs the contract, contact and still able to go through and have a soft shot, able to still get it up on the glass. That doesn't happen. The guy has to be tremendously strong and have the ability to absorb all that energy and kick it back out once he goes up. All right, so I got to ask you about 81 finals, 28 and 15 in game five. You average 17.7, 9.5, 2.8 assists, one block a game. There's not many people in that finals MVP fraternity, if you will. So what was it about that matchup against Houston that really worked in your favor for, where you, for lack of a better term, really went off? Um, you know, I think that they was just talking a lot of noise and we were all tired of it. You know, Moses Malone was over there screaming and yelling that, you know, he could get four boys from Petersburg, Virginia to beat the Celtics. And so we were, I was just upset. I was irritated. And, uh, you know, I have been playing well, uh, you know, in during the Philadelphia series up leading up to that. And I saw that they didn't have a weak link of guarding the opposition's forward. So, you know, I saw them play Kansas City and I saw a guy go off against them. So I said, well, you know, hell, if, if that guy can score against them, then I know I'm better than him. I should be able to score. So I, I just kind of took it at that. It was an older player on me. Uh, his name was Billy Pulse. They called him the Whopper. And he was kind of <laughs> like a Whopper at that time. So here I was, a skinny, you know, 23-year-old kid running up and down the floor. It was going to be hard to guard anyway. So it, I had a tremendous advantage on everybody that they had guarding me. Until uh, the very end, it was so funny that they decided I was playing so well that they put Moses Malone on me. And um, 
I had I had the, the you know one of those big games, twenty eight and fifteen. And uh, first of all, he said my first shot. He said lucky shot. Second shot, nah, I'm gonna kick your skinny ass. Third shot, hey, nice shot. And then from then on, he just he starts giving me accolades. So <laughs> that was that was really cool to be you know think about a Hall of Famer uh, playing against him and in the championship series and him starting to give you accolades. Yeah, so did you go back to him on those comments? Were you like, are you still thinking you get anybody to beat us? We we were screaming about that on the bench. When we were up <laughs> by game five in Boston, we were up by 26, 27, and we were screaming at the bench, well, you better go get those other other boys from, from Petersburg because the four <laughs> you got right now, those four aren't working for you. <laughs> Maybe you would have been better off going after those guys than the Houston Rockets are on the team with them. So... Larry Bird comes into the league and he was in that weird quirk back in the day where you could basically, he was stashed for a year playing for Indiana State. He loses to Magic Johnson in the national championship. So what were your first impressions of him? And when did you know like he was going to turn out to be an all-time great? Um, probably that first day of practice. Wow. Because, you know, here I was an indignant player, you know, prejudiced to the fact that I thought it was a black guy's game. And Larry walks on the floor the first time. And I see him. I'm like, dude looks slow. You know, his shot was really, you know, cranked in the I said, this this can't be, this can't be the this can't be the savior of this team. This can't be the great white hope. Well, we get on the court. I score on him. He scores on me. I score again on him. And I'm thinking, like, okay, I'm gonna tighten my shorts up and I'm gonna get in this guy's ass. Well, jump shot after jump shot after jump shot made a made me walk off the court that day after practice and the first person i got to that day first black person i got to that day i said you know what that fucking white guy can play right there and that was <laughs> that was how that started to me so i saw larry's first day and i said this when they retired larry's jersey i told him i said i was the first guy that played against you and then you just hear guys ask me and we got ready to play hey hey uh cornbread how is uh this bird kid and I said, well, you'll find out pretty soon. And he turned, <laughs> turned out to be one of the all-time greats. I mean, his imagination, his hustle, his desire, um, gritty determination, ability to make clutch shots and clutch plays. Very few people uh, can line up to, uh, to, to Larry with that ability to do all that stuff. And he used to like tell tell guys what he was going to do to him, right? Like I'm going to spin here or shoot this. I, I remember one. Didn't he say? Didn't he play a whole game like left handed or something like that? Because he was saving his right hand for was, the Lakers. There was something like that where he said, "I'm only going to shoot with my left hand today." And <laughs> but that really showed you how ambidextrous he was. He'd get around the rim and and which I didn't realize. Larry actually, if he signs an autograph, he signs it with his left hand, but he's a oh, right handed wow. shooter. So that's what made him really tough around the basket, that he could use either hand so well that he could trick you. Wasn't going to jump over you, wasn't going to jump through you, wasn't going to beat you with, with speed, but he had a certain amount of quickness. And I talked to Brad Stevens about this um, two days ago, and we were comparing him to Luka Doncic and uh, saying that that's the same way. You look at Luka and going, mm, mm, you know, not that but he has a quickness and a strength that he goes through your body and knocks you away and able to get those shots off. Larry was able to get that shot off against 
virtually anybody at any time. Yeah. So that that 80s group, obviously in 83, the Sixers kind of spoil the party. But what was it like to finally like you and the Lakers were circling each other and you get them? What was it like to live in that moment with that great rivalry? See, I grew up after that happened and I watched that documentary recently, the ESPN one a couple of years ago. I thought they did an outstanding job. But just the hatred between you guys and then when you finally got them, what was that like? Both teams, be careful what you ask for. Because the Lakers, they were juggernauts. Uh, essentially, if, if Gerald Henderson had stolen the ball in game two, the Lakers maybe would have swept us in the finals. Gerald steals the ball, uh, and we win game two in Boston. We go out and play game three. We get destroyed. And then we got we had a huddle. Uh, we had a uh, before practice, we said no layups. And Kevin McHale who is one of the meekest, most timid guys out there. Kurt Rambis comes, grabs him around the neck, and from then on, it went from being basketball to rug, rugby ball. And we were more physical. Uh, we were more determined. We were a lot more nasty than the Lakers could imagine. And uh, then they started playing our game. Uh, they wanted to retaliate. Uh, James Worthy pushing me in the back. and All kind of stuff going on, and it just got to be – probably one of the um, forerunners of the new NBA to see these two great teams play at the height of their power. And you think about it, there were, I want to say there was like eight, at least eight all-star, eight all-stars, but eight um, Hall of Famers who were on the floor at that time. Uh, the Celtics had Dennis Johnson, uh, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, so that's four. Then you look on the other side, there was Green, there was Worthy, there was Magic. Uh, Bob McAdoo was over there. So you had eight guys, and then you had a couple other guys like myself and Jamal Wilkes who were finals MVP. So you had had a smorgasbord of talent uh, with those teams that were over there. So who is the Laker you hated the most? Worthy. Because him pushing me in the back, talking a lot of noise, I I hated that. And even now, I rev him today. Uh, You know, (laughs) whenever I can. And and he's going to rev me back. You know, when the Celtics lost in the finals, uh, there was a picture of James Worthy doing like this to the Celtics. <laughs> night, night, <laughs> night, night Celtics. But I can't wait to play them this year. Oh. I kind of troll him. I see him on uh, a lot. I, I go to YouTube and I follow his uh, post game comments. And he's been kind of sad this year. Almost, I almost feel bad for him. Uh, I yeah. mean, one game was something the Lakers lost. I think they were 4-0 or something like that. Uh, no, 0-4, uh, excuse me. And uh, James Worthy, uh, they came to him. They asked him a question. He says, I just want a drink. Give me a drink. <laughs> so <laughs> and my, my guy Worthy, and, and I love him. He's actually, you know, a big-time player. Uh, he's from Gastonia, North Carolina, which is not far from University of North Carolina, Charlotte, maybe about 20 miles away. Um he saw me play in college, which I didn't know. He said, he told me one day, he said, you know, I was a, a big fan of yours. He said, matter of fact, I was there in the front row uh, when UNC Charlotte played against Centenary University with my great buddy, Robert Parrish, uh, where we beat them in uh, Charlotte in front of about 12,000 people at the Coliseum, a sellout. So there was some, uh, there was some, uh, you know, I like him. I dislike him, but I like him at the same time. So I, it's a 
it's a love-hate relationship, I think, with myself and Worthy and Magic and whoever he is on the Lakers. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's a great point, too, about all those Hall of Famers. I mean, you think about it, what do they have three number one picks when you had Kareem, Worthy, and Magic? So, hey, Max, just before we let you go, we obviously know about Bird and Mikhail, et cetera, but that 1980s group, who do you think is the guy that doesn't get enough attention or is the most underrated? Hmm. That, that's hard to say. I, it, it probably would be me, you know, that people don't talk about sometimes. I remember this year I had to talk, uh, had a um, had a kind of going back, uh, um, back and forth with Draymond Green about, I said something to him, like some of the way he was playing. I told him, I said, you know, I said <clears throat> to Gary Payton Sr., I told him if uh, he had been doing that during the 80s, he got knocked the fuck out. That's what would have happened. <laughs> and and when he heard that, he came back at me and all this stuff. And I, I finally said at the end, I said, oh, man, I was on TV with Isaiah and uh, a couple of guys. And I said, gentlemen, let me explain something to you. There's only been 33 finals MVPs. And damn it, I'm one of them. And Isaiah reaches over and going, me too, me too, I'm one. <laughs> so, yeah, I probably don't get the credit. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't worry about that. You know, they can never take the Hall of Fame. You know, never could take the Finals MVP away from me. Having your jersey retired with one of the greatest teams of all time. I mean, I, I, I think I get my credit, but I think there are some people who underestimate what I really did for that team. Yeah, no doubt. I was going to say you if you didn't mention yourself, to be honest with you. And I guess you can't wait to see Draymond this year either because the Warriors don't look great. Well, Draymond and, and the Warriors right now are struggling. But the thing about it, I think he has, is it four rings or five rings now? Yeah, he's got four. Yeah, he's got four. So him, he, Curry, has and Thompson. Four ring. he has four rings. So he has a lot of a lot of talking he could do. Uh, you know, he's a, for what he does for that team, he's a great facilitator. And they would not have won without him. Uh, he does his job. He might not be the best scorer in the world, uh, but he's a really good defender. And when it comes to stirring the pot, he does that as well as anybody. Without, you know, sometimes he will cross the line here in the new NBA, uh, but he does it in a way that he is able to get across that line but then come back because I think without him last year, I think the Celtics would have, would have beat the Golden State Warriors. Uh, especially, I think it was game. What's that? Game four. They could have. They could have gone up three one or something like that. But uh, you know, Draymond Green got made the water real dirty and nasty, and uh, the Celtics start playing there. The Celtics start playing the Golden State game, and I couldn't say the Golden State game. They start playing the Draymond game, and uh, Draymond kind of took took Jalen Brown, I think, out of uh, a series where he was really good, and uh, just kind of got in his head. Yeah, I'm with you. Once Jalen started like addressing those comments and he was talking about ripping his shorts, it did feel like Draymond kind of got in their heads. All right, that is Cedric Maxwell, 1981 Finals MVP. And of course, you hear him during each and every Celtics game. Max, thank you so much for the time, man. This is so much fun. We really appreciate it. All right, dudes, have a good one. Thank you very much for having me. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, a former Patriots quarterback now doing work with NBC Sports Boston, Matt Castle. Matt, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, brother. No problem at all. All right. So before we get into some of the issues with this Patriots offense, I just want to start with Mac, because I'm wondering from your perspective, that Bears game where he played the three series, you get the crowd cheering for Zappi, you get the boos (laughs) for Mac. How much can that affect a guy? It can definitely impact you. I mean, it's something that sticks with you for a long period of time. But but at the end of the day, it's one of those situations, the farther you become removed from that game, that situation, you're able to overcome it. And it actually makes you focus a little bit more because sometimes stress can work in two different ways. But that that stress and that anticipation, that disappointment that he had that day, um, that, that can make you work a little bit harder and correct those issues that you have. And, and it's not anything that I think that I foresaw when I watched that game. I thought he was going to come back, get an opportunity to play throughout the course of game. So then when he threw that pick and was pulled out of the game and the fans were involved and there was a lot of emotion in that stadium, especially after Bailey Zappi going in and winning two ball games for the club, it was probably a tough pill to swallow for him, especially considering what he d- had done the year before. But at, at this point in the season, he's probably moved on. You got to turn the page. And that's the big thing about playing this position at the quarterback. You got to have mental fortitude, man. You got to be mentally tough and you got to understand that there's going to be good days. There's going to be bad, but you've got to deal with those bad days in the right way as a professional and move forward. Well, on top of that, too, how hard is it for a guy in his second year where he had a system with Josh McDaniels, who's considered to be a really good offensive mind? I know his team's struggling right now, but Mm -hmm. then you bring in Matt Patricia, who's never called plays before, and they want to do a lot of different type of stuff, right? At the beginning of the season, they want to throw up these 50-50 balls to Devontae Parker, and it felt like a lot of the stuff the Patriots were doing for the majority of last year was pretty effective. So how hard can that change beyond a player that felt like, okay, I'm probably going to build off what I did last year, and instead, not that the offense is totally different but there's a lot of changes there yeah there's a lot of changes and you have to anticipate that in the nfl i think it's a lot easier for veteran guys that have been around and see that every year your roster is different a lot of times your coaching staff will change at certain positions and so this is one of those circumstances that he had to face it head-on in only his second season with a different play caller a different quarterback coach so again maybe some of the terminology change i don't think it's as dramatic as people are making it out to be in terms of terminology and scheme but at the end of the day it is a process to get used to the, your play caller uh, new terminology certain things that certain certain coaches are asking you to do the year before or now that maybe it's different this year in terms of how you do your footwork or your reads. And so there's got to be constant communication. That's also hard for a young player like him at the only being in his second year to go in, sit down with your coaches and communicate openly about what you like, what you don't like, maybe disapprove of something that you're doing. So it, it was a challenge for sure. Um, yeah, one of the things that I know it's come up a lot this year is the play action stuff, the RPO stuff, like play action. He was at 26 percent of his dropbacks last year. That's down to 16 percent. You look at the RPOs. They tried them last time against the Colts. It was his most dropbacks in a game using RPOs. But then there's right. the quick game last year in terms of getting rid of the ball with under two and a half seconds. He was at 47 percent of his dropbacks. That number is now down to 40 percent. So what do you think the issue is there? Why aren't they getting the ball to Max hands quickly? Is it the scheme like they want him to throw the ball down the field more? They're not drawing stuff up for Mac to get rid of the ball quickly? Or is it a Mac or a line issue? What's kind of the problem there? Well, I think quick games always got to be a part of your offense. And, you know, that's always part of the self-evaluation. And during the bye week, too, you have to look at those numbers, look at the statistics. Where were we really good last year? What does Mac do really well? 
and try to provide him with an offensive structure that fits his skill set and what he does well. So it might be quick game. It might be incorporating more play action pass, particularly on first and second down, because right now I think that they're a very run heavy offensive unit on first and second down. So being able to switch that up a little bit, fight your tendencies and, and, and change that and become more consistent with maybe throwing the ball on first and second down play action. And again, it's sometimes it's the decision based on what you're going up against that week, because every week's its own entity in terms of game plan. And particularly when you talk about the new England Patriots, I know Patricia has been around it, Belichick, everybody else. It's never like that offense is going to be exactly the same. You might have your core fundamental plays that you're going to run, whether it's run or pass. But at the end of the day, you're always trying to look for weaknesses on the defensive side of the ball that you can exploit. So you're going to have wrinkles in the game plan. And this week, it might be one of those situations where they play a lot more too high coverage. They're going to roll the corners. So the quick game might not be as good this week. So you're going to try to get behind that defense and more intermediate routes. So you you know, understanding the complexities of offensive ball is sometimes doesn't always tell you what the statistics do. Yeah, so it's interesting, too, because you mentioned that first down run stuff and the game against the Colts, that was like the most infuriating one, right? They just kept running the ball (laughs) against a good rush defense and it didn't make any sense. And it felt like, hey, that's kind of hurting Mac because now it's an obvious passing down on second down. So when you look at it, Bill also said that they were tipping plays. Now, they kind of walked that back this week. Are the Patriots, are they becoming like too obvious in their play calling, for lack of a better term? Well, I say this all the time. Every every team has tendencies. When you go out and you watch any offensive unit, there's tendencies in certain from a certain personnel standpoint. There's certain tendencies in first and second down, even third down, where they like to go if they're a shot team on the fringe. All those things. Same thing defensively. When you break down a defense, you break down their tendencies on third and three to six, third and six to nine, so forth and so on. So you can get a better understanding to how you kind of game plan that team and go after them. So when you're talking about, hey, you know, uh, Shaquille Leonard had us, he called out three or four plays. That happens throughout the course of a season with good players. Those guys study film as well. They're instinctive. They're well coached. And if there's a tendency, a lot of times it's a guessing game. They're saying, hey, you're running this play. I, hey, watch this play, watch this play. And sometimes they're right. But there's a majority of the time where they're completely wrong. And you just smile at yourself and go, okay. So they might have got, got you on that play. But again, you don't want to be so you don't want to be an offense that comes out and shows so many tendencies that they can get a beat on you just from formation. There's different ways to give variation and also different looks, pre-snap motions, all those different things that can change it up and you still run the same play. So you got to be careful of that moving forward. But I don't think that they're at the point where you can sit there and watch them and call out every single one of their plays. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because Bill was basically saying this week that the Jets are the Jets. And the way that I interpreted that is he's basically saying they don't really do different things defensively. And look, their personnel is great, right? Quentin Williams has been outstanding. Mm. Sauce Gardner's having a great rookie year. So it's kind of like not to compare the two teams, but Seattle used to play the same defense, but they had really good players too. So I can understand the logic there, but that also makes me think, Matt, and maybe I'm overthinking this. Does that mean that Bill and maybe Matt, Patricia and Mac maybe found something that they think can work on Sunday? You'd hope so. I mean, when you go into against the teams like that, like Robert Sala, when he was with the 49ers, again, this was a lineup defense. They're not going to show a ton of disguise. They're not going to be in a, a ton of different sub sub packages in terms of nickel, dime, and substitution. So they're going to have who they're going to have, and they're really going to rush you with four guys because they can get after you, like you said, 
Quentin Williams, Solomon Thomas. They got Franklin Myers. You got Carl Lawson. I mean, all these guys can get after the quarterback. So what they're going to do is put more guys in the secondary, have structure, and they're going to simplify it so that those guys can play fast. They know what they're doing. They've got a little bit of youth there, but some experience as well. So that's always been their mentality. When you go up a team like that, you have to understand they're going to have good team speed because they're going to know what to do. They're going to, when, when they go and close the gaps, it's going to be quick. But at the same time, that allows you to go out and game plan against the team where you know where they're going to line up, but then it comes down to execution. It comes down to the offensive line stepping up to the challenge and blocking those guys, giving Mac Jones time because guys will be able to get open. And, but at the same time, you have to execute at a high level because those guys will know what they're doing and they'll know their responsibilities. Okay, so one thing that's kind of been frustrating to me this year is Ramondre Stevenson has been outstanding in the backfield. He's been great mm-hmm. catching the ball, too. And Jacoby Myers has taken his game to a different level. Like, I didn't know he had this level of improvement. We'll see what the Patriots get done with him in terms of a contract because he's working himself into a good money deal here. But right. that secondary option in the pass game, at mm-hmm. the beginning of the season, I thought it was going to be Kendrick Bourne, and then we found out he had a really bad training camp. And then at some points, I'm like, okay, maybe they really like Tyquan Thornton after the Browns game. They were handing him the ball off. And then a couple of weeks ago, I was reminded, well, Hunter Henry was really good with Mac last year, and we saw right. what he did in the Colts game. He was really productive, and he hadn't really been productive with Mac this year. It had been in the two games with Zappi that he played really well. So from your perspective, who's the guy that should be that option outside of Jacoby Myers in the passing game that they feature more? Right. It's one thing was that when you watch the film early on, a, a guy that showed up constantly and especially big play production was Devontae Parker. And he's a guy that has been able, he hasn't got a lot of targets, but at the same time, when you're throwing the ball, particularly downfield, they didn't have that one-on-one option a lot last year. And when he came in and you specifically versus Baltimore, you saw some incredible catches down the sideline, the go route, stuff like 50-50 balls. He's gone up, he's competed, he's made some of those plays. He needs to step up and he needs to be a factor in the pass game. Nelson Aguilar, at times, he shows... He shows that brilliance of why they brought him here, why they paid him a lot of money, because he he can step up, he can go get it, he's got speed, but then all of a sudden, you know, you're in the Detroit game and you throw a slant route to him and he throws the ball up in the air and it gets intercepted when Bailey Zappi was playing. So there's too much inconsistency there, but he's another guy that if they can get more consistent play out of him, he could help this team. And then again, the, the factor that you said about Kendrick Bourne, I still am mesmerized by the whole entire situation, how it unfolded in the offseason, bad training camp, all those different things. Because this is a guy last year that was majorly productive for this team. And it was a guy that you thought was going to build off that success, but hasn't really been able to. And then in terms of Hunter Henry, he was more of a red zone threat last year, but he he still hasn't got his way. And you even listening to him talk earlier in the season, he said that he was hindered a little bit by a shoulder surgery that he had this offseason, wasn't up to speed, wasn't himself, so to speak. And so hopefully the second half of the season, he kind of starts to get his bearings under him again and becomes a player that he was last year. Yeah, the Bourne one to me is still the most surprising because you look at some of those, like the Yak last year per reception, he's up in the top 10 in the NFL. The passer rating when he's targeted was great. I'm just, I thought him and Mac had a really good connection. But the offensive line the past couple of weeks, and I know David Andrews has been out, so that's definitely a big part of it. But Cole Strange was benched. Isaiah Wynn's been in and out. He's been switching positions. So how concerned are you about this line right now, Matt? I do have concerns. I mean, because it's hard to build that cohesive unit up front. And that's really where, where you win a lot of these ball games offensively is controlling the line of scrimmage, pass protection, running the ball, doing all those different things. And so when you have so many different guys going in and out of the lineup, now you can't help it when David Andrews get hurt, somebody else has to step up. But then like you said, Isaiah Wynn going to right tackle this season, but then being in and out of the lineup for 
for not really stepping up and having steady play and Marcus Cannon having to go in. Now, Cole Strange, who had been, I thought, one of the most steady offensive linemen for him for the first part of the season. And then all of a sudden, last week, you see him getting pulled in and out of the game as well for Isaiah Wynn. I don't know if that was the reason was because of the size of Isaiah Wynn against that big front of the Indianapolis Colts. But at the end of the day, at some point, you got to pick five guys that you trust that you're going to go to war with and go and say, hey, look, this is our unit. We got to get better collectively together. It'll help this week with David Andrews being back because, once again, he is the focal point for this offensive line. He's the communicator. He's the guy that gets them ready and can get everybody. Maybe they don't know exactly what's going on. He can communicate the front, the ID, all that stuff. And so having a guy at the center position that knows knows it the way that he does will help them. Yeah, and it should be a big help for Mac as well. So I asked James White about this a couple of weeks ago. If mm-hmm. Bill really hates the Jets more than anybody else, he said, yeah, he does. So when you were there, you were in the middle of like the Mangini feud, right? Like when Mangini had taken the job with the Jets. Right. So what was that like? It it was the same same feelings that you just talked about. I mean, literally everybody on that staff, if you work for Bill, you hate the Jets. Even though Mangini left the year before, like he was there my, my rookie year and then left and went to the Jets. For some reason, you just have hatred for the Jets. I don't know all the reasonings behind it. I know that there was stuff in the past and all that stuff with Belichick resigning and doing... But at the end of the day, you just kind of come to know, like, look, if I'm a Patriot, I hate the Jets. And that's just how it's been ingrained in your mind. All right. So I wanted to get into your career because it's really interesting. Obviously, you took over for Tom. But so after you play against the Chiefs, you guys win that game the first week after Tom tears his ACL. And then so correct me if I'm wrong, if this story is true. So basically, they bring in Tim Rattay and Chris Sims to Foxborough. Mm-hmm but they never mm-hmm. work out for the team, right? So is is that what happened? Was it one of these situations where Bill brought the guys there and then he said, don't come to Foxborough, we're going with Matt Castle? I have no idea, to be honest with you. My head was spinning enough that week, right? I got to <laughs> go up to the podium. I've got the wrong hat on. At the time, the, the league sponsored by Reebok. I've got a Nike hat on. I just wore it because I wasn't <laughs> anticipating going. I get fined by the NFL. And then... The whirlwind of the media and the emotion that went into Tom Brady, the MVP, one of the best seasons to ever be played by a quarterback. We go to the Super Bowl. Obviously, we lost, but we're 18-0 going to the Super Bowl. I mean, there's a lot of pressure. So I just tried to get into my bubble. I tried to go into the stadium, stay concentrated on what I need to do. And it just happened to be that my first start was against the Jets and Brett Favre in the Meadowlands. So... Uh, you know, it was it was a challenging week just to block out the noise, but I, ha- I had to somehow stay. I wouldn't turn on ESPN, all that stuff. I had to do all these different interviews, but I had to focus on the task at hand. And I thought Josh McDaniels, Coach Belichick, everybody did a remarkable job of keeping me on task and not letting me get too distracted by everything going on outside the building. And then once we went out there, I didn't know what was going to go on, but, uh, you know, they put together a good game plan. It was pretty simplistic of what they did. We threw a lot of slip screens. We used Kevin Falk out of the backfield, and we were able to put enough points on the board to go out there and get a victory against against the Jets in my first start. And, I, and the cool part about it was at the end of the game when it was all over, the first person to run across the field was Brett Favre, and he sh- stuck his hand out, shook my hand. It was a class act move. And he said, hey, I'm really happy for you. Congratulations. And it was a moment that I'll never forget in my NFL career. But it was uh, it was pretty wild that, that whole week. <laughs> that must have been insane because, I mean, you're replacing Tom Brady, who would go on to be. And at that time, he was already already going to be a Hall of Famer, but the greatest quarterback of all time. And then Brett Favre, the guy had already won, what, three MVPs. And right. you're playing him in your first game. That's absolutely insane. So did the pressure, did you not feel the pressure in the first game? Did you feel it in the second game? When did it register to you like, 
oh, I'm replacing Tom Brady and I'm playing for a team that just went undefeated trying to get back to the Super Bowl. When did that kick in? Well, you know what? After the first game, we went out and we beat the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, I felt I felt decent about my performance. I knew there was so much room to grow. I, they kind of protected me with the game plan that next week in terms of how they called it. They didn't really expand it. It was the following week against Miami where they came out in the Wildcat. I didn't play really well, and they just drummed us. And that's when you start to feel the pressure, especially when you're a guy that's stepping in for a guy like Tom Brady because you have to be consistent week in and week out. You have to show those guys that you're going to be accountable week in and week out. So when you start to – you get a few losses or you don't play as well, that's when the pressure at the quarterback position – starts to kind of it starts to build and so once we got through that we went to san francisco had a heck of a game there got beat by san diego chargers at san diego and then from there it was broncos i think at home on i want to say it was a sunday night football game where we drummed them and then it was about stacking wins and once you start to stack those wins and start to get that consistency and start to feel that confidence at the quarterback position you can see that the other guys in the huddle start to believe in you that's when it becomes fun when you can really deal with the losses or the hiccups throughout the course season. Because when you play this position, look, week in and week out, there's always pressure, man. I mean, you sit there before every single game, no matter if you're 8-0 or you're 2-6, and and you're feeling that in your gut before the, season, I mean, before the game, that anticipation, a little bit of anxiety. Every quarterback will tell you there's something before a game that you feel it, and it's pressure because you know that there's so much on your shoulders every game to go out, make the throws, make the right decisions, get the protection calls right, and you just got to go through it in your head, and it's all about the preparation that you put in. So what was it like to play with Randy Moss? He said once the guys started believing in you, was he just like, hey, just just throw it down the field, man. I'll be there. Randy was the ultimate guy of Castle. I'm open, dog. Just throw it open. And then he put <laughs> – he, he had this big – he wore white gloves, and I'd see him constantly. Like He, he, he was in, an incredibly intelligent player. He understood defense. He had great instincts. Even the first completion I had when I went against the Kansas City Chiefs, what it was was it was supposed to be a five-step skinny post, basically, in front of Patrick Sertain. We run a pop pass. We are backed up. And he saw Patrick, who's a, a veteran player, step inside. He's like, gosh, it's going to be really hard to cross his face. And he's my number one read. Well, I come off the play fake. I had him, and I'm anticipating him in that window. And he's already run, run right by Patrick Sertain. And he's running a go route because he just saw him jump in. And I was like, oh, gosh, I got to get this thing up. So I threw it threw it down. It was like a 56-yard completion. I was like, what just happened? Like, that was not drawn the way it was supposed to be drawn, drawn up. But he was a guy that wanted the ball in his hands. He wanted the ball in his hands early. And like every great receiver, if you can get him going early, that's when he was at his best. When he didn't get the ball early, look, there was some answering that had to be done. And a lot of times he was mad at me, like, Cassim, I told you this dude's sitting. Like, we were in a cloud coverage one time against uh, against Seattle Seahawks, and he's like, Cassim, hey, I'm going up the rail. And I was like, dude, you've got an end cut on this route. And he's like, Cassim, I'm going up the rail. Throw it up the rail. And I was like, all right, like, I got you, dog. So it's pretty funny because when you play with greatness like that, and I mean, I would you get sometimes intimidated by – his achievements and everything that especially as a young player you're trying to prove yourself and trying to show him that you'll you'll be able to put him in a good position to be successful not just the team but once you start to build and you start to play well and he starts to get his touches and all that there's a common respect that happens and he was always a big supporter of mine throughout the course of the year and that was a huge huge part of it too 
And we always talk, talk about Tom like having these great slot receivers like Troy Brown and then obviously Welker and after that Julian Edelman. So how much easier does it make a quarterback's life when you had that guy like Welker that you knew uncovered really quickly? It was outstanding. I mean, anytime that you had a guy that could go win in those intermediate route patterns and also it creates such a mismatch on the interior part of the field because Welker, Julian Edelman, guys like that, Troy Brown, they're also really smart and they understand defensive setup. So when we'd come into a stack versus man-to-man defense and they're running a combo coverage, both Randy Moss and Wes Welker would understand how their release pattern needs to happen to set up angles and set, get, get that separation. So they were so good at that and you had such confidence in that they were going to go be at the right spot at the right time. And if you want to play them one-on-one, that's that's your fault because nobody – could cover Wes Welker in in a five to ten yard range. He was just too quick, too explosive. So you always had that security blanket. Then the only other thing that they could do is potentially double him or push coverage his way, which leaves you one on one opportunities with guys like Jabbar Gaffney or or Ben Watson when he was there. Like it, it was just too many weapons at that point for you to come out and just say, oh well, we're going to stop one guy or we're going to double this guy because then we also could run the ball. So that's the fun part about offense when you got weapons like that. Yeah, I feel bad for Welker because people remember like the Giants catch that he didn't make. But I mean, he was one of the most productive players that we've seen in a Patriots uniform. Obviously, he had a tremendous career, but it's like he he's one of the rare players like during that era that was here for a long time that didn't get a ring. Right. Where he went the right. whole four to 14 and he was definitely deserving of a ring. And he had a great career. My one thing, my, my the one thing that pissed me off about Bill was when he sat him for the Rex Ryan comments for like one series. I just thought that was <laughs> bad juju, yeah. like going into the game, yeah. like just let him play, man. Like who cares? And if you're going to, he's going to play anyway, just let him play right. at the beginning. I hated that. I thought it was one of the funniest things. Cause I talked to him before, like right after that day. And he was saying, dude, you got to tune into my press conference. Like, you got to check this out. He's like, you can't dip your toe in the water. You can't do this. You got to put one foot in front of the other. And I mean, the the stuff that he was able to come up with, and I think I have to also probably give a little bit of credit to Larry Izzo, who is his counterpart and our boy too, that was very, very good at those like one-liners. And I was like, this is incredible. Like, because the story about the foot fetish, this, that, another just came out. And then to go into your press conference the week of the Jets week against a, an opponent that you don't like anyway and say those great comments, I was like, this is gold right here. I would have I would have started him at quarterback that week. Screw slot receiver. Yeah, I know. Good little foot soldiers. That was my favorite one. Yeah, good that, little foot soldier. <laughs> it was outstanding. It was absolutely outstanding. So One of the best. Yeah. He's a man. So after that season, of course, Brady's coming back. So you know mm-hmm. that that means you've played well enough to get a starting gig somewhere else. So that offseason, I remember, I believe Adam Schefter was at the NFL Network at the time. And he had right. reported that there was a three-team deal on the table where Tampa was going to get Cutler. You were going to go play for Josh in Denver. And the Patriots, I believe, were going to get a first-round pickback. Do you remember how that all sort of went down that offseason? Yeah, it was crazy because there was a lot of different conversations with, a few, you know, there's only usually a handful of teams that were in the mix in terms of bringing in me as a quarterback, making that trade. Because again, when, once the Patriots had franchised me, they still had my rights. So they they could de- decide where I'd go and based on what they were going to get in terms of compensation. Well, Josh had just left and obviously I had a relationship with him and he was going to the Broncos. And so there was a lot of discussion with the Broncos and I didn't know how it was all going to work out. You heard about these different trades, whether it was Tampa Bay or Detroit, a three-way different trade with the Patriots. And at the end of the day, I was already talking negotiations with 
the Broncos in anticipation that might happen. And then was soon thereafter, I get the call that, hey, you've been traded to the Kansas City Chiefs. So it, it happened because, again, it, Pioli went there. I knew that there was a relationship, but they can't – Pioli and Kansas City kind of came into the game a little bit late. Like there wasn't a ton of conversation going on with Kansas City until the last moment, and they made the trade for me on my franchise deal, not even do it, getting a deal done prior to me coming. So it was – it all unraveled quickly. I didn't anticipate going into the Kansas City Chiefs until they actually told me, hey, look, we've traded you the Kansas City Chiefs. And I remember, too, so Vrabel went with you, and I remember he was really pissed about that. And I wonder, maybe that's part of the reason he really likes beating Bill now, is getting him back for that trade. <laughs> that's exactly right. At least I did get to bring my boy Vrabel with me. I mean, or I, I went with Vrabel, however you want to say it, because we were good friends here. His family came out. And I know, I mean, after the career that he had in New England, all that he gave, I'm sure that, you know, when you get to that point in your career, you're year 12 and you get traded to Kansas City for uh, some draft pick. I'm sure that there's a little extra incentive when you're coaching now to go out and try to beat Bill each and every time. All right, so Josh McDaniels, you mentioned there, his team's 2-7. and seven. There has mm. been some talk about his future there. And, look, Mark Davis is not the type of owner that can afford to fire a coach after a season anyway, right? I mean, he's not right. Stan Kroenke with the Rams or anything along those lines. But So he's going to be back next year, but do you think they can turn it around? It's been surprising to me to see, not this year, but I'm talking about next year. It's been surprising to me to see, like, their 14th in points per game, which I thought that offense, at the very least, would be outstanding. Mm -hmm. I did, too. And, you know, it's interesting because I think people have this – uh, misconception about the offense and that they're at full strength all year long. You bring in Devontae Adams, who's, you know, if not the f number one, he's the second second best wide receiver in the league. You think that with him, Hunter Renthrow, Darren Waller, I mean, you're, you're going to be able to go out and be productive. But the fact of the matter is those three guys have only been on the field together 62 snaps this year. I mean, Hunter Renthrow got knocked out with concussion. Now he's on IR with an oblique. Darren Waller hasn't played since week five. He's been out with the hamstring. So those guys haven't been collectively on the field, which makes an impact. I think uh, from an offensive line standpoint, they're better at their run blocking than they are their pass blocking. They've given up a ton of pressures. The other part that's disappointing about this team is how undisciplined they've been. I mean, they rank ninth in the league in terms of total penalties. And, and really, there's a lot of penalties. I think 34 of those are on the offensive side of the ball. Those are drive killers, man. Anytime you're moving the ball and doing all that stuff, and you get penalties, whether it's a holding or something like that, it sets you back. Those are tough to overcome. And then you look at the defensive side of the ball, right? I mean, where they were really good last year were creating pressure. They might not have had the sack production. Max Crosby there. They bring in Chandler Jones. They they got rid of a few guys up front. But they're 30th, I think, in terms of pressure this year. They can't get pressure on the quarterback other than Max Crosby. They don't create turnovers. They've got six turnovers total on the defensive side of the ball. But when you look at the offense, they've only turned it over seven times. And they've also, this is a team that's blown three, three 17-point leads. So, I mean, there's a lot to digest there. There's a lot to go through. But there's uh, some strong points of what you can point to and say, if they can get better in this area, this area, this area, then they can turn it around pretty quickly. Because I, I do have faith in Josh McDaniels, but I know that this has been very disappointing, the way that the season's turned out for everybody involved. Yeah, and you mentioned Chandler Jones. I was thinking, hey, maybe the Patriots should go after him, but he looks old this season. He does not look like the same guy that we – he was a consistent pass rusher for so many years. Hey, Matt, before we let you go, so yeah. Tom Brady now back-to-back -back wins, and last week I think the big thing was in Germany, they finally got that running game going against Seattle. So is this the time of the year we're going to see the Brady guy go on another run here? I'm not talking about Super Bowl, but this team got to be relevant again down the stretch? 
Well, I think they're relevant, and it, it helps that they're in the NFC South, right, with New Orleans, Carolina, and also Atlanta. And now they're, they're in the driver's seat in that division thinking, and it's kind of crazy to think about, at 5-5, five and five, right? So they're at 5-5, five and five, they're in the driver's seat, and the one thing is they have been inconsistent from the offensive standpoint, a little bit on the defensive side, but I, I know that there's a number of different reasons that people will point to, whether it's the offensive line injuries early in the season, they, Chris Godwin didn't come back until a little bit later, uh, Russell Russell Gage, you've got uh, Julio Jones, all those guys have different different moments in which they've been out, but if they can get it going offensively again, get that run game established, take some pressure off of Brady, play action, their defense is has shown that they can be an elite defense, and they're a tough defense to get stuff done on, so if they can be productive, this is a team, if they can start playing their best football the end of November, end of December, January, that's a team that can put themselves in the hunt at the end of the year. Yeah, nobody wants to see Brady in the tournament, right? I mean, that's... no, man, you know what he does. I mean, come on, come on. But wouldn't that be wouldn't that be the ultimate end of the story if if he does retire? Who knows? But at the end of the day, like you know, you go through all this adversity, you stink, you st- and it's just one thing. And I've been around him so many times. It's one thing that he needs to to motivate himself to to put that chip back in his shoulder and say, okay, everybody's doubted me. Every, my back's up against the wall. Our team's struggling. They think I'm done. They, we don't have an answer for what we're doing offensively. And then all of a sudden it switches for them. And it, it just all of a sudden goes the opposite direction. Yep. We've seen it too many times. That is Matt Castle, of course, former Patriots quarterback, now doing stuff at NBC Sports Boston. And make sure to check him out Sunday after the Patriots and the Jets. Matt, thank you so much for the time, man. Great stuff. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. I had a fun time doing it with you. Have a great one. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff, of course, from Matt Castle and Cedric Maxwell. A lot of fun talking with those guys. So I wanted to get to this, the trifecta. So I want to give you three things. My favorite Jets-Patriots rivalry moments. I did this with my buddy Andrew Callahan on his podcast. It was a lot of fun, so I got to bring it here. Then I want to get into the biggest thing the Patriots need to do to lock up this win. And maybe I'll give you two on this in terms of keys to the game, so to speak. And then finally, I want to give you the narrative that's going to be determined by what happens on Sunday. Okay, so let's start with the rivalry. So obviously, the Mo Lewis hit changed the trajectory of the Patriots franchise. But I'm not going to put that on my favorite moments of the rivalry because Drew Bledsoe was concussed and he was seriously injured. Remember, he had a serious chest injury after that as well. So we have to recognize that that did change everything with the Patriots organization because, of course, then Brady gets the keys and he never looks back and he wins all the Super Bowls, blah, blah, blah. 
But remember, that day was really bad for the Patriots organization because of the injury that Bledsoe suffered. I mean, there was thoughts that, I mean, this was something maybe he doesn't come back from. So it was really a tough injury to watch because that was something that really affected Bledsoe going forward, of course. Okay, so in terms of the rivalry, my favorite moments and games. So I'll start with a game here. The butt fumble. You got to put the butt fumble on there. The Patriots, remember, they had recently been beaten by the Jets in that playoff game at Foxborough. We were talking to Matt Castle earlier about this in terms of the whole situation with Wes Welker before the game, making fun of Rex Ryan and his foot fetish. And the Patriots lost that game after going 14-2 and that season. And what happened with the butt fumble when Sanchez runs into his center, you beat the Jets on Thanksgiving 49-19. to And Sanchez, of course, had run into Brandon Moore, as we pointed out, But that was kind of sort of the moment where you're like, okay, the fucking Jets are a joke again and orders restored. Yeah, this was cute. The Patriots and the Jets, they were competitive against each other. It's cute. The Jets made two conference championship games. I know the Jets fans love to talk about the conference championship games they made. Well, they didn't make it to the Super Bowl, but nonetheless, I don't want to get worked up about that. But that's sort of when the Patriots laid it down and they said, hey, you're not living in this neighborhood anymore. You had your fun. It's over. Okay, so... A moment for me is the Darrell Revis signing. So the reason I love this so much, it's because Darrell Revis was the Jets guy. He had arguably the best cornerback season in NFL history in 09. Remember, he was shutting down Chad Ochocinco, Randy Moss, all these guys across the NFL. He was outstanding. And then Revis ends up, he's one of the greatest free agents in NFL history, made as much money as he possibly could. He goes to Tampa Bay. It doesn't work out there. He was coming off an injury that season. The Patriots get Revis. They do some really cool things with them where they would at times put him on the number two receiver and then double the number one receiver. And then it ended with Darrell Revis, the hired gun, spending one year with the Patriots winning a Super Bowl. And he had to replace Tlaib. Tlaib left. And you're like, wait, hold on. What are the Patriots doing at corner? They get the best corner of his generation in Darrell Revis. And just think about this. The most rewarding thing about this from a Patriots fan's perspective The Jets guy, the guy that the Jets loved, Revis Island, won a Super Bowl with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Think about how much that would sting their fan base. It was just absolutely awesome to see. All right. And then the other one I have to mention here is one of my favorite moments. And look, there's a lot during the Mangini era as well. But I'm just talking about my favorite three moments, the butt fumble, the Revis signing, and then Darnold seeing ghosts because that was just hilarious. The guy's mic'd up. He knows he's mic'd up. He says he's seeing ghosts. Now, maybe you can argue it was unfair for ESPN to put that on air, but that happens. At the time, it's 24-0. Darnold had already thrown three interceptions. He ended up throwing four picks. He was 11 of 32 in the game. 11 of 32 for 86 yards. And after that, not that we didn't already sort of have an indication of what he was as a player, but you're starting to think, yeah, so the Jets don't have a quarterback, huh? The guy they took third overall, the Jets really, really, really don't have a quarterback. So that was just an embarrassing performance for the Jets. And that's really, I mean, look, the Jets have had a lot of low points in the organization, but that may have been when they were at their nadir because that was a horrible team with a horrible quarterback. All right, so let me get to a couple of keys to the game here. First one from my perspective is keep the Jets' running game in check. So they ran for 5.1 yards per carry against the Bills, and Wilson threw for just 154 yards. So Wilson was not great in that Bills game. It's just he wasn't constantly throwing the ball to the other team like he did with the Patriots. Michael Carter in that game, 12 for 76, so that's 6.3 yards per carry. 
on the season, he's at 3.9 yards per carry. Now, the Jets in that first Patriots game were at just 3.4 yards per attempt. So the reason I bring up minimizing that running game for the Jets, it's the formula that helped you win in that first game is they couldn't run. So what's that mean? You put the game on Zach Wilson. And remember, Zach Wilson, last time against the Patriots, the Patriots pressured him on 18 of his dropbacks. That's 41.9%. So they were all over Wilson. How did Wilson do in those scenarios? He was four of 16. Four of 16! One touchdown, but three interceptions, and they were all bad. I mean, especially, I, I can't even rank them because they were all bad. The one that he threw to McCourty at the end of the game where he's just backpedaling away from Judon, he throws it up. The guy's out of the pocket, just throw it out of bounds. It made no sense whatsoever. So if you take away the running game, you put this game on Zach Wilson, which obviously would help the Patriots tremendously because nobody believes in Zach Wilson whatsoever. Now, another key to the game to me is the Jets all of a sudden have a really, really good receiver. And that's the rookie in Garrett Wilson. And look, Garrett Wilson is somebody that bursted onto the scene this year, but he was somebody that everybody thought was going to be good coming out of the collegiate level. And unfortunately for the Patriots, it looks like the Jets really hit on a receiver. So the first matchup against the Patriots, Jalen Mills, there was a broken coverage where he had a big play. Jack Jones is going to get some time. And all these guys are going to get time on him. And how the Patriots are going to sort of game plan for him, are they going to put a safety over the top? Last time against the Patriots, a buck 15. He followed that up with eight for 92 against the Bills. So this is the big play guy for this team. The Jets don't really have a lot of big play weapons. This is the one guy that you have to be concerned about in the passing game. And the reason I bring that up again is because of the quarterback. Like I said, you need to take away the running game, but secondarily, we know that at this particular point in his career, Zach Wilson is not going to be able to go up and down the field, right? It's just not going to happen in terms of consistently moving the football where it takes you 10, 12 plays. All, he's not going to be able to do that. He needs that big play down the field, and Garrett Wilson is the one guy that can do that. So if you can minimize Garrett Wilson and sort of take him out of the game, make him a non-factor, well, then Wilson is in really, really big trouble. All right, so then I want to get to the narrative portion of this. What I'm afraid happens is if the Patriots lose or if the Patriots win closely and Mac doesn't play well, well, the narrative is, wait, hold on. Is Mac closer to Zach Wilson than being a franchise quarterback? Because last year, nobody would have thought that, right? Based on Mac had a really good rookie season. Zach Wilson was horrible as a rookie, and he, quite frankly, hasn't been good this year. I mean, look at the quarterback record. That means nothing. Zach Wilson has played really, really poorly for this team. Mac Jones has obviously taken a step back after the good rookie year, so I didn't think we would be here. But if Mac Jones plays really well in this game and he outplays Zach Wilson and he looks like the far superior quarterback again, it's sort of like, well, order's restored. Mac is back on track. Mac looks way better, et cetera. Not to say that everything will be solved after this game, but at least you'll feel better about Mac. Because if you look at it in terms of just these guys, if you compare them against each other this season, out of the 39 qualified quarterbacks in terms of passer rating, Mac is 37th at 76. Wilson is 38 at 75.5. So they're living in the same neighborhood. Turnover-worthy play rate. Mac is 34th at 4.8%. Thanks to our friends at Pro Football Focus for that one. So 4.8%, that's a really high number. Zach Wilson is 38th at 5.6% in terms of his turnover-worthy plays. So that's really bad. And then the pressure numbers we gave you with Wilson against the Patriots, but think about this on the season. 
The rating for Mac against pressure is 27.2. That's 38 out of 39. For Wilson, it's 6.6. I mean, that's almost impossible. That's 39. But those are the worst two quarterbacks from a rating perspective in the NFL this season. Then you look at the interceptions against pressure. Mac and Wilson both have five. So it's going to be interesting to see what Mac looks like in this game because I really think the Patriots need a convincing win. I'm not going to look at the defensive performance, even if they shut down Zach Wilson and be overly impressed. I'm not trying to take anything away from the Patriots defense. They have been flat out outstanding. I just want them to do it against. I want to see them do it against a good quarterback before I say this is a great defense, right? Because if you look at it, they lost to Lamar. They lost to Rodgers. They lost to Tua. They lost to Fields. They beat the Zach Wilsons of the world, right? They beat the Sam Ellingers of the world. So I want them to beat a good quarterback before I completely buy into this defense. I love what I see, but I got to wait for that. From an offensive perspective, the Jets have a good defense, but I need to see the Patriots start to move the ball. I mean, right now they're 28th in yards per drive at 28.56. And please, please, will you help Mac out with, and we talked about this with Mac Castle, throw a little bit on first down. The Patriots right now are last in rush DVOA on first down. That's an efficiency stat. Nobody's worse at running the ball on first down than the Patriots. It's becoming too obvious. They're becoming too predictive. So please figure this out. All right, and let's get to our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. So the Patriots, three and a half point favorites in this game against the Jets at home. The boss sent me this. 82% of the money on the spread is coming in on the Jets. This is an overreaction to them beating the Buffalo Bills. Zach Wilson was not great in that game against the Bills. The defense was good. Josh Allen was bad for the Bills. So I don't buy into this spread for the Jets. And I know the Patriots have not looked great offensively. But from my perspective, I really like the Patriots to win this game and and cover that three and a half. And this really is a must win for the Pats. They lose this game. They're last in the division. And the Jets will have passed them in the division just in terms of what we think of the two teams, because, of course, the Jets will be sitting there and the Patriots will be looking way up at them and they'll just beat them head to head. And then you look at the schedule. You play a good Vikings team on Thanksgiving, Buffalo twice, Miami again, Cincinnati. You have teams looking up at you in terms of that wild card race to begin with. So the schedule gets difficult. And this is a game that the Patriots, if they don't win this one, I believe the season's going to be over, too, just because of the emotional aspect. Right. Where you've been working for almost two weeks to try to fix your offense during the bye week, etc. And if it doesn't look better on Sunday, this Patriots team has major, major problems. All right, as always, make sure to leave us your voicemails at 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. We'll be with you after the Patriots and the Jets game. We'll be joined by James White. So if you want to leave a voicemail after that one, make sure to do so. And also an announcement, we will be working on Thanksgiving. So after the Patriots-Vikings game, we'll have a pod for you after that game. So whether you want to stay up really late into the morning on Friday or when you wake up Friday morning, you get to drive around, you're doing the Black Friday shopping. I wouldn't do it, but if you're doing it, just a heads up. Our pod's going to be out there. If you're at the gym, you're just hanging out at the house. We will have a Patriots-Vikings reaction pod after that huge game on Thanksgiving night. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 